Thank you, choir. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. It says 4 in your order of worship, but uh, 4 actually, uh, I believe, belongs with the uh, passage for next week and sermon next week. So we'll do 1 through 3 after a couple weeks off for the conference. And then uh, Andy uh, preached a fantastic uh, sermon last week while I was away um, preaching at a conference. Thank you for your prayers. Many of you said you were praying for me, and the Lord really blessed that. Now we return to chapter 14 of John. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that, there, that where I am, you may be also. The word of the Lord. Our God, you were faithful in the first service. We pray you'd be faithful again to show us the power of this promise, the depths of this promise, and the applications of this promise for our lives. We long for this day. We, we, we long for you to return and um, the ingathering of your people and to be in your Father's house forevermore. We, we, we long for that promise, but Lord, here and now, help us to apply what is to come to our lives now. I pray that there are, if there are any here who are not settled um, with this, with this promise, have not obtained this promise by faith, I pray that today would be that day. For those of us who look forward in anticipation, fill our hearts with hope this morning. Wake us from our slumber, wake us from our dull hearts and drifting minds and help us to see once again the power and beauty of your future promise. Jesus, help me to be faithful and forgive me where I'm not. Cover over many failures, Holy Spirit, with your grace we pray. Amen. So as we return to John this morning, we enter into chapter 14, which is going to feel um, a lot different. Uh, If you've been tracking with us in chapter 13, uh, you will know that it's been a really heavy passage. Um, It's it's been cryptic, it's been weighty, it's been um, sad. Jesus is talking about leaving his disciples, he's talking about his betrayal, his coming death, he's talking about Peter's failure. And that all kind of sets the scene for the rest of the Upper Room Discourse, which begins this morning, um, which, quite honestly, from here on out, is full of just amazing promise that we're going to get to bask in together as God's people. And it begins with a promise about belonging, specifically where you belong. This week is, of course, the beginning of uh, my favorite time of the year, March Madness, and one of the most fascinating stories that I always think of uh, during this time of the year uh, has nothing to do with uh, basketball, uh, but, but comes out of one of the tournaments. Uh, back in 2014, it's about this guy named Danny. Uh, Danny is a huge University of Virginia uh, fan. Went to UVA, big UVA fan. And back in 2014, um, for the ACC uh, championship game, Virginia was playing Duke in the ACC championship game. And Danny uh, came up with an idea. 
um, he decided just before tip-off to just walk down the aisle uh, pretending like he knew exactly what he was doing, that he completely belonged, and just kind of with a confidence and a swag, just started walking down toward the course to see what would happen. And sure enough, he gets past security, he gets past the, 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 the little um, gate there, and people just kind of assume he knows what he's doing, and he belongs, and he walks down, and he ends up on the court. And as it happens, and this guy's kind of become legendary, you can go uh, look it up this afternoon, it's, it's hilarious, but as it happens, he's everywhere during this championship game. He's sitting behind UVA's bench. A couple times he, he, seats, he sits himself at the end of the bench. He's on the bench with the team. Uh, when UVA huddles up during timeouts, he just jumps in the huddle, and, uh, and he's just, Danny's just there. Um, and Virginia ends, up winning the, Virginia ends up winning the basketball game, and Danny's totally a part of the celebration. Uh, they gave, somebody gave him a hat and a T-shirt to wear, and he's just running around with the team. There's just Danny. He got a picture with the ACC championship trophy. My favorite part is um, he, <laughs> he jumps in line with the team after the game and shakes Duke's players' hands and says, good game. And, and ESPN catches Danny shaking Coach K's hand after the game, saying, great game, Coach K, whatever. So anyway, Danny somehow, some way, just by pretending like he belongs, ends up in the middle of the ACC championship game. It's a crazy story, but I thought of it this week when I thought of this passage because in many ways I think, uh, I think we may fear that that might be our story. Um, do, you, do, you, do you ever feel, do you ever feel, when it comes to this Christian stuff, to God and the gospel and all these things, do you ever feel like an imposter? Like a, a phony, just someone who is good at pretending the whole Christian thing, but deep down you wonder if you actually belong in all of this. I mean, maybe not just here, belong in this room or in this church, but just, just to the gospel, to God himself, that you actually belong. Or do you just feel like you fooled everyone? You fooled us, you fooled yourself, but you fear the truth that you cannot fool God and eventually you will be found out and you will be kicked out, exposed for the fraud that you are. At some level, all of us struggle with this. And here's why. We're caught in a dilemma. And it's this. Because of how we were created in the image of God for the presence of God, because of how we were created, all of us deep down have this desperate need to belong. Specifically, to belong to God. And yet because of the fall, all of us have this sinking suspicion that we no longer belong. Specifically, no longer belong to God. And so we're trapped. Deep down, we know we must be with our God and the presence of God, and deep down we know that to be there is to be a phony, that we shouldn't be there. Well, in our passage today, Jesus is going to do something. He's going to assure our hearts, our troubled hearts, our hearts that feel hypocritical, our hearts that fear we do not belong. He is going to assure our troubled hearts that we actually do belong. So much so that we belong as a permanent residence in the household of God. Not because we faked our way in, but because he is our way in. We're going to look at the text through two angles here. 
the place and the promise. So the place where you belong, we talked about that in the first point, and then the promise that you're going to get to where you belong. Let's start with the place itself. He begins this whole new section of chapter 14 with, let not your hearts be troubled. Remember that in chapter 13, again, Jesus has turned their world upside down. Um, They had visions of messianic triumph and glory, but Jesus speaks of suffering, of betrayal, of denial. Most shockingly, he's told them, I have to leave and you can't come with me. So they're scared, they're hurt, they're bewildered, they're doubting, and ultimately they are, as Jesus calls it here, they are deeply troubled. This verse assumes there, the grammar of the Greek here is that he's not trying to tell them don't be troubled in the future. He's got a group of disciples who are troubled, who are freaking out, and he's trying to talk them off the ledge. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Instead, he gives them something else to do. Instead, trust God. Now, they would be very familiar with that command. You are very familiar with that command. It's all over the Psalms. It's all over the Scriptures. Trust God, trust God, trust God. But Jesus is going to add detail and substance to this. Because quite honestly, they need it and we need it. Perhaps for the disciples and perhaps for you, the trust God thing feels very routine, maybe even bland. They know they're supposed to trust God. You know you're supposed to trust God. But what does that even mean? What what does it look like to trust God? How do I trust God? Why should I trust God? What am I trusting in? I mean, just the trite, just trust God feels a little empty. These are the true cries of our anxieties. Well, Jesus is going to do something in John 14 and into the next chapters. He's going to do something very, um, honestly, groundbreaking and profound, biblically speaking. He says this, trust God, trust also in me. And we take that for granted, but that's huge. Without hesitation and without qualification... Jesus invites us to trust in him in the same way we are called to trust in God. Now, that's not to be viewed as a competing trust, as if now you've got two people that you need to be trusting in. No, no, no. This is a Trinitarian trust. What Jesus is saying here is you trust God by trusting in me. Jesus is the fullest answer to what it means to trust our God. So when the Psalms say, my trust is in God, what does that mean? That means Jesus. And all that Jesus provides. So from here, it is easy to argue, some commentators do, and I agree with them. It's easy to argue that the rest of the discourse is Jesus defending his audacious claim that he should be trusted on the same level of Almighty God. You have always trusted God, now I invite you to trust in me, here's why you should do that. And it begins with what seems to be a really strange reason to trust in God. He says, trust God, trust also in me, because in my Father's house are many rooms. This is the introduction to what is obviously a very famous promise in Scripture, um, very very famous uh, words that even if you're unfamiliar, 
with the Bible. You've probably heard these before. But it's also one of the most misunderstood passages, especially because William Tyndale translated... It actually started with the Vulgate, but he translated the word room here as mansions. And quite honestly, back then, that wasn't necessarily a bad translation because mansions had a a different meaning than than now. But what's happened is that that crept into the English translation, and then it's been immortalized in our hymnody. We'll sing it in our closing hymn this Sunday in Mansions of Glory. And and the idea of um, our final reward is being a mansion in the sky and so forth. Um, and so what happens is the meaning of this promise got, kind of got turned into a prosperity promise, the idea of lavishness that is awaiting us all, which isn't the point. It's not that you're going to get this great big mansion in the sky. The point is who's there with you. The point is where you are, and the reward is what's there with you. The Greek word translated here as room is fine. I think that that's a fine translation, but it... It probably is best translated dwelling, dwelling place. In my father's house are many dwellings, are many dwelling places. So get all of the mansions in the sky, sweet by and by imagery out of, out of this verse, okay? So that you can really appreciate what's being said here. What, what's Jesus saying? What does he mean by father's house first? Well, he's already used the term when talking about the temple. Uh, the temple of God was, was known to the Jews as the house of God, the tabernacle and, the, and then the temple. This was the residence of God on earth. And Jesus, again, being very audacious as he is, begins to call the house of God my father's house or even my house. So um, he, he's calling the temple my father's house. But it wasn't just the temple that was the residence of God on earth. More specifically, there was a part of the temple, the inner sanctum, the sacred room, holy of holies. That is the place where God's presence dwelt. This dwelling place where, as we heard in our Old Testament reading, that's why I had Becky read that, where only the high priest one day a year could enter this room and to do so had to go through so many rituals, you heard it, so many rituals and cleansings and sacrifices and all of these things because this room literally housed God's holy presence. It was like this inner sanctum where heaven and earth merged together in Israel. So a room which was the dwelling place of God within the house of God. Now back to our passage. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Jesus offers his disciples a vision of a heavenly temple with not just one central dwelling place room, but a temple with many rooms of God's dwelling. Okay, great concept. Cleared up what he's really talking about there, but what's that have to do with my troubled hearts? Remember what he's doing here. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in me. Here's why. My father's house has many rooms. How is that news of many dwelling places supposed to calm my anxious heart. Well, it isn't just that the Father's house has many dwelling places. It's that one of those places belongs to you. One of those places is yours. And your God is there waiting for you. Let's move from the place to the promise of where you belong. 
He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, this immediately begs the question, when did he say that? This is the first time, and we haven't been going through the Gospel of John, but this is the first time he said this in John. When did Jesus say, I go to prepare a place for you? And the answer on the surface is he hasn't. But the truer answer that he's hinting at here is that he's been telling them this all along. Even in chapter 13, Jesus was hinting at times, he was explicit at times, but the message was very consistent. I'm about to do something. Something is very significant is very imminent. Jesus is about to do something for his disciples that they did not expect in any way, but something that needed to happen in every way. And it is what he is about to do that makes the prepare a place possible. To quote Don Carson on this verse, it is the going itself via the cross and resurrection that prepares the place for his own. So it's not that he's going and then he, when he gets there, he's going to do something to prepare a place, like get the house nice and tidy for you, get, get it ready for you. It's the going itself is what prepares the place. They don't want him to go. They don't want him to suffer and die. They don't want him to ascend and leave them behind. But Jesus' point is that this is the only way to prepare a place for you. The ritual that we read in our Old Testament reading there, from Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, please, please understand, that was, that was serious business. That was not meaningless symbolism. Only one person entering the Holy of Holies only once a year, only after cleansing. I mean, did you not get overwhelmed as you listened to that? The priest had to be cleansed. The, the sacrifice for the sins of the priest. And then, the, and then there's more bloodshed. And then this side of the altar and that side of the altar. And you got burning coals and incense. And it's just, well, that's not empty ritual. That's serious business. It's that scary is the point. It is that scary to enter the room that houses the presence of God. Because sinful man cannot survive the presence of God. You know that, right? No one can stand in the midst of God's holiness. None can endure a glimpse of God's glory. Not a single sinner can occupy the presence of God and live to tell about it. No, no, no. The presence of the thrice holy God is our ruin. And will induce eternal death. You don't want this room that houses the presence of God. It is your greatest nightmare. And yet, and this is why we're caught. And yet, at the same time, everything inside of us wants this room. We need this room. Every single one of us was created for this room. We are deeply longing for this room, for this room is the end of those deepest longings. All that we want, all that we need, find their resting place in the presence of God. So we were made for the presence of God, and yet because of our sin, the presence of God has become our greatest fear. This room is where we ultimately belong, but we dare not enter this room. That's the dilemma. But Jesus sees no dilemma. Here he is in our passage just brazenly, flippantly 
declaring to his followers that they will have all that they need. They will be where they belong. They will inherit their own room in his father's house. And he says that as a promise, not a threat. But but that's literally an impossible promise. To which Jesus says, well, I'm going to go prepare a place. I'll make it happen. I know you don't want me to go, but I have to go to prepare your place to make your room in my father's house possible. And so shortly after this final conversation, Jesus does go. He is betrayed, he is arrested, he is condemned, he is mocked, he is tortured, and ultimately he is crucified. Not for his sins, but for mine. As a substitute, Jesus bears the very sins that makes room in God's house an impossibility for sinners. And so definitive and so sufficient is his sacrifice that when he breathes his last breath, the first thing that happens when he breathes his last is what we heard the choir sing so beautifully, curtain torn in two. From top to bottom, the veil, the thick curtain that guards the Holy of Holies is torn and the access into the presence of God is now wide open. And you, sinner, are invited back into the place where you belong. Well, then after his death, he rises and he ascends back to the Father's presence until all the rooms are prepared. Until all his children from all across all families of the earth come home where they belong. Until every tongue, tribe, and nation via the good news of the gospel comes home to the house of God. And then... He is promising he will return for this great ingathering of us all to our eternal dwelling place and home. That is actually his main point here. Not the preparing a place for us, but the promise that if he prepares a place for us, he's coming back. Verse 3 is an argument that he's making. And if I go, listen to his reasoning. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Jesus is building his argument for a trust in his promise. And essentially, this is his argument. If I did the hard work to prepare a place for you, do you really think I'm not going to get you there? Christian? Do you really think Jesus will go the way of the cross to make possible your room and then let that room remain unoccupied? Come on. Jesus did not die in vain. He will receive the reward of his suffering and his reward is this. Where I am, you may also be. The reward of his suffering is you in that room, in his presence. It's not just that you are longing for the presence of God. The presence of God is longing for you. Literally, Jesus is dying. Or Jesus has died to be with you. He wants you home even more than you want to be home. And so, beloved of God, you are coming home. 
You are. Now, let's do this. That's the promise. Let's take that future promise and apply it to our current lives because that's what Jesus is trying to do here. The application for us here is the original command of the passage. Remember, all of this is in support of this statement. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust me, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come again. So here's the question. And then we'll take that promise and apply it. Here's the, is a really simple question. What right now is troubling you? What specifically, right now, is troubling your heart? Would you be willing to... Uh, Bring that. Would you be willing to vulnerably bring that to your parish group tonight, or to your friends, or community, or whatever, wherever you're finding community? Would you be willing to bring your 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 specific troubled heart to your group? And I wonder if they can help you see what I'm going to try to help you see now. I wonder if that trouble. Um, if that trouble would be transformed by the news that you belong to God, a full member of the household of God, so much so that you have your own room. I wonder if the news that you fully belong to the household of God, not not a couch to sleep on, not a guest quarters off somewhere, not a leased space in the house of God that you're going to have to eventually get kicked out of. No, no, no. That you have a room in the house of God, a permanent dwelling place in our Heavenly Father's house. What does that eschatological promise, that future promise, do to present troubled hearts? Let me help us imagine it. But again, get specific in community. Perhaps coming away from your conference, your heart is troubled about your family. Our conference, for many of you, was that, and you shared that with me. And, and not in an angry way, but in a, a regretful way. That it only highlights your troubled marriage, your parenting is troubling, your singleness is troubling you. And so perhaps a well-intended conference that, of course, was there to help you actually troubled you some more. Some of you said that. Some of you said, I loved it. This was beautiful. I loved everything about it. I only wish I heard it 20 years ago. And I can't go back. And so what I've done to my kids is troubling me. What my parents have done to me is troubling me. What my marriage has become is troubling me. Your heart is troubled over your family. Well, I wonder if the promise of your eternal home will transform the troubles of your temporary home. I love Sandy Wilson's story in the parenting seminar. You need to go listen to that if you haven't yet. Um, with this dear old saint who has a prodigal child um, who's left the, faith, left the faith, rebelled against parents' faith. And this mom's on, on her deathbed and she spent every day for years, weeping and praying for her son. And she's dying, and her son comes to visit her. And, uh, and she says, you know, I have, I have wept for you every day 
it's time for me to weep no more. I'm done. I'm leaving this behind. I'm going home where I belong. And I'm not going to worry about you anymore. It will be so good that all of my troubles, even a trouble as intimate as the rebellion of a child, will be forgotten. Now, what does that news do to the troubles of parenting? It lessens. It puts them in proportion. It helps us understand that there's coming a day when even parenting problems will trouble us no more. Perhaps you're troubled this morning by just life, difficult circumstances in life. Maybe your cancer, maybe cancer of someone you love, maybe job loss or insurmountable financial troubles, maybe an addiction you're fighting that you're tired of giving into, um, maybe, maybe a convergence of just stressors all together in life, just things piling up and you don't know if you can bear it much longer or perhaps you can't bear it much longer, perhaps you've You've snapped, you've broken, and you're in a dark season of the soul, a dark night of the soul, depression, anxiety. Perhaps your heart is troubled just by life, difficult circumstances. I wonder if the promise of an eternal home, of perfect circumstances, might transform these temporary difficult circumstances. It doesn't change your circumstances. It transforms your circumstances by placing your circumstances into proper perspective. It's the difference between, use this illustration, um, uh, you know, the nuisance of a car ride. Uh, we were ta- I was trying to get this heavenly concept across one time, and, uh, and we, I was talking to, to, to the kids and, and said, uh, you know, if you haven't noticed, Daddy at times can get, shall we say, a little impatient in the car, um, impatient with traffic, impatient with y'all impatient with the messiness of the car and just impatient 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 trouble 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 I said well, what do you suppose if somebody gave me a call and said hey um, I got a million dollars for you it's across town drive over and pick it up I wonder I wonder how that would transform that car ride I wonder if I wonder if the messiness of my car would be I'm okay with that I wonder if getting caught cut off by a random driver I'd be It's fine. I got a million dollars. I wonder if what's waiting might put what is in proper perspective. And and, and this this is eschatological hope at its best. That what is to come takes what seems huge to us, seems burdensome to us, seems overwhelming to us, and deflates it. Because there is an eternal destiny coming of perfect circumstances. One more. How about this? Perhaps you're troubled by the fear of future. This is the big one that I want to talk about because I think this is probably the biggest one for most of us. It's not that you, it's not the circumstances current, it's the fear of what is to come, right? It's not the cancer. You don't have cancer. You fear the cancer diagnosis. It's not that your kids are struggling. You fear the future struggles, what is to come for your kids. It's not the finances are struggling. You fear a financial crash or something like that. So today's fine, today's great, it's going to be a beautiful Sunday, sunny afternoon, but you can't ever enjoy these days because of what is to come. Fear of 
culture declining, secularism rising, war could be imminent, markets could crash, tragedy may strike, and on and on our crazy minds go ruining our days. Well, this one is easy to apply. You have no idea what the future holds except for one sure and certain thing, this passage. Chances are your future fears, 99% of your future fears are just that. They are future vain imagination fears that will not come to pass. But chances are certain that this future promise will come to pass. Perhaps you ought to stop fixating on probably won't, what won't happen and start fixating on what actually is going to happen. And if it happens, okay, go back to my last point and deal with it that way. But maybe you could just consume yourself with what you know is going to happen. Jesus risen from the dead, so we know this is going to happen. And just say to your vain imaginations, I'm allowed to just let you go because I know where this ends. And speaking of future, I would be remiss if I didn't challenge those of you, either here or listening, whose future is not secure with this promise. I just, I mean, I cannot pre, I mean, good gracious, Billy Graham spent his whole life preaching this passage, right? And uh, so in honor of one of my heroes, how, how can I not Billy Graham this text? Um, I don't know what's troubling you, but I know what should trouble you. Where do you stand with God and where are you going to go when you die? This is the offer of Jesus right here, okay? There's, there's room for one more. There's always room for one more. That sounds, like, that sounds like Reverend Graham, doesn't it? There's always room for another. There's room for one more. This is the hope. This is what's offered to you. Where do you stand with God? What are you going to do about your death? I cannot fix your life. Jesus is not the immediate fix to your life. In fact, in some ways, he will make your life harder. But he is the, fat, he is the fix to your greatest trouble, not your life, but your death. You can have that trouble resolved tonight. You could go to bed tonight with that anxious fear subsided. It's over. Peace with God. Death is feared no more. Your room and the household of God. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, follow him as Lord, and it will be so. So you see how this works. What has your heart troubled? No matter what it is, it will never trouble you there, so perhaps it should trouble you less here. Does that make sense? Whatever that is, the answer, what troubles you, it will never trouble you in eternity, so perhaps it should trouble you less now. But all of this will only happen this transformative hope will only happen if you actually believe this. If you truly believe that you truly have a room in the Father's house and that Jesus truly is coming back to take you home where you truly belong. Because like I said in the beginning, I don't think we actually think we belong. I think that's so hard for us. We feel like phonies, pretending, faking it, soon to be found out and kicked out. Well, the truth is you're right. I will shoot you straight. You have no business being in the house of God, nor do I. And your shame and your guilt and my shame and my guilt is constantly reminding that this is so. But the greater truth that overwhelms that truth is that you actually do belong in the house of God because Jesus has made it so. You cannot prepare a place for you 
but Jesus has gone and prepared a place for you. You can't get yourself in, but Jesus can get you in. You belong, not because you belong, but because Jesus belongs and you are clothed in him. When it was, uh, when everybody started figuring out that this guy Danny had snuck into the, uh, into the championship game, <laughs> reporters and everybody started interviewing and asked him, said, okay, how'd you pull this off? It has to be more than you just walked down an aisle and pretended like you belonged. And he said, well, I did notice the game before that everybody on the bench, all the managers, all the assistant coaches, they all had on the same outfit. Navy suit, orange Virginia tie. So I went to Walmart, spent 100 bucks, got a Navy suit, orange tie, walked down like I belonged, had on the uniform, I got in. The promise of the gospel. Did you hear in Leviticus 16? What's with all the linen clothes the high priest had to wear? I mean, we get the blood, right? We get the incense. We get the sacrifices. We get the cleansings. What's with the linen underwear, the linen outer garment, the linen sash, linen white, linen this? You know. You know what that's talking about. The promise of the gospel is not just that Jesus has taken away our sin that keeps us out. He has clothed us in righteousness that gets us in. It is priceless, and yet it is free. When he shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Let not your hearts be troubled. You belong now just as much as Jesus belongs. Let me pray. Overwhelm us, Lord, with the sense of our belonging to you, that your sin has taken away that which keeps us out and your righteousness has given us that which gets us in. And both now, Lord, are symbolized in what we are about to do. Assure our hearts through this meal that the gospel is true. Bid our anxious souls to calm down with the good news of promise. Let not our hearts be troubled because you have gone and you have prepared a place and that changes everything. We need to believe that. We need to believe that we belong truly. Use this meal, O God, to do just that, we pray. Yes, for your glory, Jesus, but for the good of our anxious souls, we pray. Amen.